here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shift No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Today's guest is an award-winning writer and editor with a broad range of experience and education in the writing and editing field. For nearly a decade, she served as a logistics officer in the Canadian Forces, specializing in human resources before being medically released due to an injury. After an internship in a publishing house, her freelance career expanded to a wide range of publishing mediums, including blogs, books, newspapers, and magazines. She now instructs at several universities and colleges in Canada, including Trent University, Loyalist College, and Royal Roads University, teaching creative writing and nonfiction. It's my pleasure to welcome Kelly S. Thompson. Yay, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to dive right in because you're a nonfiction specialist. Why don't you start by telling us what falls under the banner of nonfiction? I mean, certainly it's a really wide 
broad range because there's so many things that we typically didn't think genre-wise were nonfiction, but of course can be. For me, creative nonfiction and the article writing I do, where I draw the line between what I can play with creatively and what I can't, is the difference between personal truth and fact. So when I'm writing an article, that's very much fact-based. I'm giving details that can be verified by paperwork, by data, that kind of thing. When I think of creative nonfiction, it's me telling you a story through my point of view. And of course, my point of view is filtered through bias, is filtered through life experience, is filtered through my education, my knowledge, my background. I think that's where we have a little bit of room to play as long as we're honest with that playfulness. And where would memoir fall in in that range? Uh, I think it's different for every writer. For me, I'm very honest up front. I usually, I had a disclaimer and I will on my next one as well where I say my memory is fallible, I'm human, I'm bound to make mistakes. And I play a little bit in terms of timeline. So maybe the way I've organized something would be structurally bending those time limits as far as what truth would be. So I think it's a matter of honesty, and that varies very much between each writer as far as those blurred lines between fiction and nonfiction. Novels like Shantaram by Gregory Roberts or A Million Little Pieces, James Frey. Okay, James Frey, there was a big upheaval about that because he misrepresented what it was initially to sell it, said it was memoir and it turned out to be more highly fictionalized. In terms of Shantaram, where would that fit into the spectrum? I use the example of Azar Nafisi's Reading Lolita in Tehran. So it's very much a memoir, but she draws a lot from magic, realism, and fictional in terms of this one character who's kind of maybe there, maybe not there. They call him the magician. You never really know. I'd place it on a six you know, out of that truthfulness scale, but there's honesty there. To me, it comes down from the honesty of the narrator, of the writer of the book to say, listen, I've played a little bit and that's sort of up for you to take as the reader. And this is obviously something that you as the writer would disclose to an agent up front who would then disclose that to an editor up front. Very much so. I kind of joke that my editor and I, for my first book, I had to do a timeline of my partners um, so that she could, you know, look at the overlap. And so it was a a rigorous process because you don't want to misrepresent yourself. There's too much social media access. You have to be honest or your book doesn't sell. You don't come across as reliable to your readers as well. A timeline of your partners. Do you mean sexual partners? Yeah, yeah, that's love. That's a bond with your editor right there. Yeah, it's a small list. So it was pretty easy to cobble together. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so way more honesty involved in the whole relationship than in fiction. I feel like this is why our fiction, I'm not going to say I fictionalize everything, but I've had a few readers say to me, your novels are inspired by your life. Why didn't you just write memoir? And I feel like this is one of those reasons, because in terms of people that you've written about that are real people in your past, et cetera, et cetera, you've lived this experience. So you have a right to tell that story based from your experience. But have you ever had pushback from people that you've written about that didn't want to be written about? Yes. So, I mean, in my case, like with a with a memoir, it goes through a heavy legal edit to kind of double check things that I've put in there that maybe I change what every character looks like. I change what their names are, that kind of thing. I also have a lot of empathy. So I really realized that all, as people were flawed. And so I wouldn't want to be judged on the bad mistakes I made 15 years ago. So I try to keep the same thing in mind for my characters. So I have had some people 
take umbrage, certainly call me, tell me that because it's a memoir about my time in the military and talking a lot about sexual harassment. So I'm talking about really big picture issues. And I definitely had some pushback, but more so from people who knew me, not people who who were sort of on the fringes of that story. Meanwhile, I also write about my dad being in a mental hospital in that book. But I asked my dad's permission because my relationship with my dad matters to me. And he gave me that permission. So there's certain people in my my life I'm willing to seek that permission from. And there's certain people where my honor is to the story, not necessarily to a relationship. So your advice then to people who are writing in the same vein as you would be ask the permission from people who matter to you. If, for example, you had asked your father and there were certain things he didn't want you to disclose and there were others that he felt comfortable with you doing, then would you have changed that? Yes. So I actually did the same thing with my sister. Years ago, I wrote uh, an essay about my sister who was an addict for many years. And I wrote an essay about our relationship and I wanted to publish it and I wanted to put it out there. And I asked her permission because we were finally kind of coming back to one another. And she said, you know, I really wish that wasn't out there right now. And I, so I listened to her. But you have to, if you ask that question, you have to be prepared to honor what that person's asking of you. Something that I found so fascinating, which is why, you know, these kinds of stories fascinate me, is that you can have two people in the same room witnessing the exact same thing at the exact same time. And when they relay that information, it'll be wildly, wildly different based on their outlook on life, their politics, uh, how sensitive they are, what they were expecting to see in that moment, how they feel about the people who they were watching, etc., etc. So it it can be extremely subjective. And, And I'm sure often you will write about something and somebody will go, well, that's not the way it happened. Do you then go, well, feel free to write your own book about the situation? (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot. When I did my master's degree in creative writing and I had Wayne Grady as my professor, so he's written fiction, he's written some nonfiction. And he used to give this example of his wife, who's also a writer, Marilyn Simmons. And she wrote a great memoir about growing up and her and her sister were in a hotel somewhere. And there was a man staying in the hotel who had a giant cat like a tiger or a jaguar or something. And when the story came out, a sister of Marilyn Simmons contacted her and argued about what kind of cat it was. It wasn't a tiger. It was a this, it was a that. And it really is all about that perception. That's where you have to make that room. And so it's funny, my husband came through basic training with me. So we met when I was 18. So we lived this experience together but I very rarely consulted him to ask him if he remembered something in the same way. This is my story. This is my truth and no one else's. So Kelly, what advice would you give to people who are writing about people they are close to, people in their lives? How could they do that kind of with respect without hurting people's feelings? What's your advice with regards to that? I always feel the only answer you can get is from your own heart. I always think of Anne Lamott wrote Bird by Bird and she had this great advice in there that says, Uh, If people wanted you to write nicely about them, they should have behaved better. I feel like that's a really, uh, I like the idea and it makes me snicker a bit, but it's not easy either in terms of, I said earlier, we're all human and we're all fallible and we make mistakes. And I don't want to be judged on the same ones I was making when I was young. So I can only answer that with my own heart. I asked myself a couple questions. How close am I with that person? As in, if I write poor things about them, is that going to damage our relationship? But ultimately, it comes down to trusting myself as the writer to represent them in a way that makes them feel seen and heard on the page, as much as I'm also able to reflect that same ugly light on myself. So memoir only succeeds, nonfiction only succeeds, when the narrator is willing to accept their fallibility and accept their bias and mistakes. 
you know, I give the example of my dad. I wrote about my dad being in a mental hospital and asked his permission. What I didn't mention was he forgot he gave me permission and then told me a month before it was published, by the way, I hope I'm not in your book. Hmm. Okay, so I sat him down and I read it to him out loud with a glass of wine, heaven help us. And I finished and my dad said, you know, that was hard, but I'm honored by how you noticed me and saw me. That's what it's about. So I have to trust that as a writer, I'm going to be able to see people in a way that looks beyond that mistake and instead looks at all the reasons that make us human. You have to trust yourself as a writer, and then you have to trust that relationship that you have with that person. And I think the self-honesty is so important as well. Um, I recently spoke to Jesse Thistle, who wrote From the Ashes. Which yes, I love it. Such an amazing, such an amazing book. And the thing that really stood out to me was the way Jesse was prepared to portray his experience, warts and all. He didn't shy away from the parts of his history uh, and himself that were quite ugly to look at. And he owned that. And of course, there was that redemptive arc. But like you say, if you if you're going to shine that spotlight and that lens on other people, you have to be comfortable doing it with yourself as well. And I, it, it was to the point where my editor said, you're so hard on yourself in the first 50 pages of this book. We need to change it because it's so hard to read. <laughs> so, but then I was like, OK, well, then I'm, at least I'm doing the good work. Also, have conversations. Talk to the people you love who are around you. And ask them how comfortable they were. Uh, I remember Diane Schumperlane. She wrote a really great memoir a couple of years ago about her relationship, a convicted murderer. And she said people were more upset about not being in the book than they were about being in it. So maybe everyone just wants to be in their book. There was actually an Esquire article that came out last week that I read that was called Fact Checking is the Core of Nonfiction Writing. Why do so many publishers refuse to do it? In it, Emma Copley Eisenberg, who wrote the book The Third Rainbow Girl, The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia, discusses the dangers of authors being forced to hire their own fact checker out of pocket if they do so at all. Is this something that you've experienced as well? How different is the fact-checking to the legal edit? What is your responsibility as a writer and what is the publisher's responsibility? Such a great question. So part of my contract, because it's memoir, states in my contract, I'm going to have a legal edit. And I mentioned they comb through things for things that could get me sued because inevitably I'm under their insurance in terms of if I were to get sued. But also, you know, there were instances where they would say to me, is this person likely to sue you in terms of for my dad, for example. So I'm telling personal details about my dad's medical conditions, but he gave me that permission, but also he's not likely to sue me. So there's other considerations, facts that you might change in order to protect someone's privacy. And that's why I have that kind of disclaimer at the start. As far as fact checking, it's funny, there was during the Writers Trust Award this year for nonfiction, the winner was talking about how they didn't really admire memoir writing because it didn't go through any rigorous fact checking. But I think the whole point of memoir is it's from a very specific lens. So if I'm picking up a memoir, I'm picking it up as a reader, knowing that it's coming through someone's personal experience. A fact-checking sort of book very much comes across in a very different sort of sense. So I'm thinking of books I've reviewed this year, like uh, Robin Doolittle's Had It Coming. Such a great book, an excellent book, but it's not memoir. It's not going into her personal experience necessarily, although she touches on it. It's very much fact-based. It's investigative. It requires that fact-checking. There were some instances with the legal edit where I would send in course reports. We would check dates. We would go through, because I had a lot of data and paperwork. So that kind of thing. 
uh, if I was questioned on something, but I could back it up with factual evidence in terms of documents, then that ended that argument. But no fact check, but a legal edit. And for somebody who's writing nonfiction, so let's say you're writing a a book about a crime that occurred and and you're doing an investigative kind of analysis of this uh, and then putting it together for a book. Obviously, that will require a huge amount of fact-checking. And from this article, it's my understanding that it can cost anywhere between five and $10,000 depending on the experience of the fact-checker and that it falls to the author to do it because so few publishing houses do that. Are there other hidden costs involved in nonfiction that people should consider up front? And I, and I ask that because my next question after this will be asking you to take me through the whole pitch process with nonfiction, how that differs from fiction, how advances, etc., differ. But when, when you write a novel, you know, you're just making stuff up pretty much. Uh, so you don't have to have travel costs. I mean, unless you really need to research a place, but then that falls to you. Your publisher's not going to pay for that. So what kind of things in nonfiction in general will the publisher pay for? What kind of things are you expected to cover? Uh, so the, even the legal edit, it's half and half. So because it's not a cost that's normally associated with a fictional piece. So I cover costs, my publisher covers costs. That said, I'm also with a big publisher. You know, I'm with McClellan and Stewart, part of Penguin Random House. So uh, it's a very different experience than for a lot of people I know who have published through smaller publishers where you don't have that kind of legal and financial backup just for the nature of the small size of the press. For me, there's not associated costs because I'm writing about my life. I'm not going back to these places. I'm drawing on my memory. I'm drawing on my personal experience. So I know some writers who uh, do incur some costs in terms of they're doing research, they're heading to interview some people, but they have to apply for grants just as much as the next person. I think the nature of publishing these days, getting an advance, writing something based on a pitch as opposed to writing on spec just doesn't happen as much these days. So I think it's quite rare to have your publisher backing a lot of those costs. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. 
Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word the more writers we have signed up the better the matches will be okay so take us through the whole process from when you get this idea of what it is you want to do let's say you already have an agent I know that in terms of writing a memoir you have to write the complete before you can go out with it is that correct yes so it was for me although I should my book started out as fiction just as you were saying where you try to keep writing things that you know that definitely have happened in some capacity or another. So I was in my master's, I was trying to write a book about women in the military. So I kept having them overseas, they're in Afghanistan, they're at war. And then I realized, no, that's not where the story is. So I came back to my personal experiences in the military. So at that point, I had passed the fictional piece off to an agent, and she liked it, but she was like, Oh, I don't know. And we didn't connect. And then I was publishing some nonfiction stuff and she saw it. And that's where she came back to me and said, let me see some of your nonfiction. So I signed with the agent before I actually had a finished manuscript, which is quite rare. And thank goodness I had her because we batted that thing back and forth for literally three years of trying to shape it up into what it was. And then sent it off to publishers. It actually went through one round and didn't get picked up by anyone. I did some more revisions and then it went out again. And Me Too had just happened. And my book is very much about harassment in the military. So it goes to show you how much that timeliness is really vital. It's not always about talent. You know, when people say, how do you get published? Be tenacious. It's not always about the talent. Everyone can learn. Everyone can grow their skill. But that determination, not being willing to be quiet, (laughs) that's what kind of gets you in the door. Like you've just said, you can write something and at that point it doesn't sell. And in five years suddenly it captures everyone's imagination because suddenly it's a timely topic. Whereas before it wasn't anything that people were talking about. So, you know, I say this to a lot of my students, just because something's been rejected doesn't mean it's not good. It just means they're not quite sure how to market it. And then if you can tap into a movement like Me Too 
it allows them so much more leeway with with how they can how they can possibly market that. Right. So three years backwards and forwards, when you were doing those rewrites, was it based on feedback you got from editors or how were you approaching those rewrites? So I was getting feedback from my agent every time. And then also at one point she was on mat leave. So I got feedback from an entirely separate reader as well. So it was really partly that workshopping process. I had just finished my master's degree. And so, you know, I had just been going through that process for a long time. A lot of back and forth, a lot of really, really big, substantial revisions. I feel like that's something people don't quite understand. They think, oh, you know, I give it an edit. And you think of an edit in terms of grammar and punctuation. No, that we're talking overhauling that whole entire thing. When it went out for its first round and didn't get picked up by a publisher, the overhaul involved the entire second half entirely rewritten in six months. So it can be big sometimes, and you got to kind of kill your darlings, as they say. Structural changes can be the hardest to do when you've got to move that structure around, figure out the structure to form the whole story around. That can be extremely tough. What is the memoir market like in terms of selling memoirs? I think when it comes to memoir, if you're not someone who's known is when it's hard to sell. Everyone who's famous seems to come out with a memoir and you're like, man, what am I doing wrong in the world? If you're not a known entity, then it's hard to sell a memoir. I think I also submitted my first memoir on the heels of other memoir that was doing very well. So I'm thinking, I can't recall the name and I feel horrible, but it was a great book written by a memoir by a female chef that was written and it did really well. Uh, Oh, it was called I Hear She's a Real Bitch. And it was excellent. And so I started doing I started looking at that thinking, well, we don't have a lot of women's military stories. We have a lot of men's, but we don't have a lot of women's. So that was kind of my hook. The thing is, though, everyone has one. That's the amazing thing about personal experience. That's the amazing thing about memoir. You can create resonance in a million different ways, because you're creating it through a shared experience. So it's about finding out what makes yours a tiny bit special. And I guarantee it's there. I just sold my second memoir. And so I think it's not necessarily because I'm quote unquote known now. There's plenty of people who wouldn't know who I am or what my book was. But it's, do you have a great way of telling a story that can play equal parts? And sometimes it's just just about getting your foot in the door. And so often uh, new writers are told that they need a platform, that they need to have this many followers and Instagram and Twitter I think what you just said is very relevant. For me, it's always a good story well told. And that's, I think, more important than platform. So if we're looking at things like a collection of essays or creative nonfiction or any other form of nonfiction, how does that pitching work? Does someone have to write the entire book? Or in that regard, are publishers looking at proposals and buying books on spec? How's that working? I think buying on spec is rare, rare, rare these days. You really do have to have it finished. You have to have a finished product. That's the thing about online and social media and email these days. Everyone has their pick. Uh, their cream of the crop, you know, you can go to a slush pile and find a million pieces of treasure. So I really pride myself on being super hyper organized and professional. I don't just treat it as this art that is an art and I love it, but it's also very much a business. So I'm going to approach it as such and I'm not, I'm going to meet my deadlines. I'm going to do my research. So when I do a pitch, I would never pitch a whole book, Uh, although I certainly kind of tested those boundaries with my agent, who's someone I can test those boundaries with. But when it comes to sort of sending out essays and that kind of thing, I think getting 
a essay collection, especially, it's even harder than a short story collection. You know, you, you have to have a name behind you at that point. That said, though, there are so many exceptions that I can think of that you might just be that exception. And I think when we tell people that they can't be, it's very defeatist feeling. If you're tenacious enough, I think a lot of it's possible without sounding overly corny. And I know tons of people who have pitched nonfiction, either essays, memoirs to an agent, and an agent has said, well, you write really well. Uh, I unfortunately can't sell this. Come back to me once you've written something in fiction or when you've written a longer collection. So some people then pivot and they fictionalize it and other people just go, oh, hell no, this is staying this way. And then, like you say, they work it and work it and work it and rework it until such point as they are able to sell it. How important uh, was your master's, do you think, in in all of this? Insanely. Uh, For me, and I don't think that's always the case, but I had been so mired in a very different environment for such a long time that that turning and suddenly being in this creative, supportive world was very different for me. I look at the writing I submitted when I first joined versus the writing that I was doing when I finished, and it is absolute night and day to the point I'm oh so slightly ashamed of myself. But I don't think that's the way for everyone. But I had also stopped reading. I had stopped writing. I had stopped practicing the entire time I was in the military. So I wonder how much of benefit I would have found if I hadn't devoided myself of creativity for that entire time period. Yeah, I feel like that was your way of finding your way back into the craft, finding your voice again. Yes. And I'm doing a PhD now, uh, also in creative writing. And um, I wondered, yeah, you do a creative portion, then you also do an academic analysis. And I thought, oh, I'm going to hate the academic bit. Nope, love that too. Love all of it. Love every step of the way. And I feel I always thrive when I'm learning, but I don't always feel like it has to be in a very rigid academic style structure either. In terms of people out there who are writing nonfiction who want to get agents, are agents who specialize in nonfiction quite rare? Or do you find that most agents kind of specialize in fiction and nonfiction. They're prepared to do both. What is your advice with regards to people finding the right agent for them? I always recommend picking up a copy, and it sounds super old school, but picking up a copy of Writer's Market and Canadian Writer's Market. And then not relying solely on that information. For heaven's sake, please go to the actual website and research. Almost every agent is very upfront about what they accept and what they don't accept. And it's when you ignore that because you see a famous name that you want to attach yourself to that you go down the wrong path. So my work I sent to my agent, I actually got the first agent I pitched to, which was a slight little miracle. Felt like she was my person at the same time in terms of she represented the kind of work I really loved and admired. And to me, that's a really big first step. Look at the books that you love by the writers you love, and then look at who represents them. And also maybe people whose work, who reflects your own work. You know, when we think of how we're writing a query to send our stuff to an agent or to a publisher, part of that is also looking at what's your competition? What else is out there? And so I looked at other female military memoir writers. I had a very small list to choose from, but I looked at their work and said, Who's publishing them? What what are they going through? And I and that sort of helps you shape that list as well. But I think it helps to look at writers you admire and who represents them. For those of you who would like to read Kelly's book, it is called Girls Need Not Apply, Field Notes from the Forces. Kelly also offers editing and manuscript evaluation services. So if you'd like to be in touch with her about that, 
you can make an inquiry on her website, which is www.kellysthompson.com. You can also reach out to her on social media. Jessie Thistle wrote the brilliant memoir, From the Ashes, which was shortlisted for CBC Canada Reads. And I interviewed him a few weeks ago for Booklaw, which is a wonderful Ontario bookstore. And I'd like to share some of that interview with you now. If you haven't yet read Jessie's memoir, From the Ashes, you absolutely must get it. It's a must read for anyone who is writing memoir. I love how you credit each of these people along your journey because our lives are this tapestry of all of these threads, of all of the people we meet along the way. And some of them are destructive, but some of them weave so much into the fabric of who we are that you can't take them out. And I love that you credited those people along the way. And even if relationships didn't work out, you credited them with whatever power they brought into your life at that time. Yeah, I always try to because I'm being held up by a million hands the million hands of the people that I've encountered in my past. You know, I didn't do this alone. There's no way that bootstrap narrative is very dangerous. And so I wanted to honor the people that taught me to be a good person, like the Chinese lady that gave me back the ramen noodles and pork. She taught me that stealing was bad. I didn't know that before because my dad taught me how to steal when I was four, right? And so that was just a natural part of my life. And I could see, hey, I'm actually hurting good people. And it's not good to do that. I learned to share from Lauriston, my cellmate, an old man. I learned that we're brokenhearted people and that we can fix that if we look at people's broken. I learned that from priests and so on and so on and so on. And so I had to honor that because really for people that are reading the book, it's a roadmap out of homelessness and trauma. I give you the pieces that people gave me, the tools that helped me get better. And I thought it was really crucial to recognize that. Right. And just on that, in terms of this exploration of trauma, I feel like when as writers, we begin to write these stories, we're writing them kind of alone. We cocooned. There are moments that we feel deeply uncomfortable about the things that we're writing, but we push through and we turn it into this book. And what we don't think about is that there becomes a moment at which these stories are no longer our own because they go out into the world and they become something that other people are incorporating into their own stories. And so the more successful a book is, the more you have to talk about it, the more interviews you give, et cetera, et cetera. And I was wondering to write these things is one thing, but then to have to keep talking about them, to keep dredging them up, to keep discussing them with people does an emotional callus grow over these wounds and it's so it's like your hands they become more callous with time the more you use them or is talking about it now you know as difficult as it was maybe in the beginning no my calluses were formed on the streets when people walked over me and that's more traumatic than having to talk about it every day and so i was tough a long time ago you know, and I think from childhood, I was growing those calluses, not having the love of my mom and my dad. And so I think I was primed to tell this story and share it over and over. It's been, it's not like now on the bestseller for like a year. And so, you know, you can imagine how many book clubs and events that is, right? And I don't know, it just hasn't bothered me because I remember that I'm telling these stories to educate and help other people heal. You know, if it was about me, I think I would have ran out of energy because Love takes you farther than ego. And that's what I always have to remember. I love that outward focus because I speak to people, my own work kind of deals with my inherent racism because I grew up in South Africa during apartheid and was taught racism. 
And so the first few times I spoke to book clubs and people like that, felt deep shame about that racism. And so I was focused on myself and how badly I was coming across rather than focusing on by me sharing these stories with other people, I was educating other people and helping them perhaps to confront their own inherent racism. Mm -hmm. And it seems like from the beginning, you've had it firmly in your mind. Why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, that's wonderful. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. 
Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.